There are multiple opinions related to the existence of God in our culture today. Some will concede that there's at least some existence of a higher power. Even certain programs uh, encourage people to select a higher power that they uh, respond to. Some confess that they believe that all gods that are worshipped in any form of religion are all the same. Some confess that there's no God at all, or at least claim to believe it. We refer to those people as atheists. And some confess neither faith nor disbelief. They hold to the premise that nothing is known and nothing can be known regarding the existence of God or anything beyond material phenomena. We call those agnostics. In some minds in our world today, God cannot be seen. And because God cannot be seen, therefore He must not exist or He must not be able to be known. The challenge with that is that we hold to belief in realities even though we cannot see certain things. Consider, for example, that if you live in Minnesota, 361 of 365 days, there's a wind outside. Right? It gets windy sometimes. Now, we feel wind, and we hear wind, and we see the effects of wind moving trees and objects, but we really don't see the wind itself. We can certainly believe wind is real because we see the effects of wind And we actually see the effects of the existence of God in our culture and world today. And even more so, we have the revelation of God. As a Christian, as a Jesus follower, we know and we grow to understand more and more that not only does God exist, but that God was revealed through Jesus while He was on earth, that God is revealed through Scripture, and that God is revealed even in creation. God is not hidden in the sense of being unable to be known but promises to be known most to those who will seek to know Him. So let's talk through a few reasons today to believe in God and His existence. First of all, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, kind of moving backwards on purpose. We're going to start by talking about Jesus. Last week we focused on the reality that the resurrection of Jesus changed everything. The resurrection of Jesus was Jesus backing up his claims and proving he was the Son of God and God in the flesh and the Savior of the world. We talked last week that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection should be considered fact because it is documented, his life, death, and resurrection are documented outside of just Scripture, but also inside of Scripture, but there's enough documentation that history tells us these things are true. There are multiple independent sources inside and outside of Scripture that recount the details about Jesus and His life on earth. There are multiple independent accounts or records that Jesus appeared to many individuals and even larger groups of people after the resurrection. And even, if those aren't enough, even the reality of enemies and skeptics turning to instead follow Jesus prove again these encounters with the resurrected Christ. Think of the Apostle Paul. We talked about last week. He was a persecutor of Christians. He wanted to imprison them and to even kill them. In Acts 7, he held the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death and was in support of it. And in Acts 8, it was Saul who was leading, Paul, first known as Saul, who was leading persecution against the church in Jerusalem, causing believers to scatter out of the city into other regions. And then you can consider James. 
James was the half-brother of Jesus, and the Bible tells us plainly that James, along with other family members, were all skeptic of Jesus. They thought he was crazy at different points early on in his ministry, but both of those two individuals, among many others through the years who have claimed to be atheist or agnostic or anything beyond, many of these peoples who have been enemy of the cross have turned to follow Jesus because they had an encounter with God. Now, with the resurrection, we have to do something with the claims of Jesus. Because he backed up what he said. I'm going to die on the cross, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. No one before or after Jesus has ever risen from the dead to live forever on this earth. Even the people who Jesus raised from the dead, like Lazarus, only lived temporarily on this earth. Other religions lack the eternally existent founder or God. The resurrection of Jesus, however, verified his claims that forgiveness and freedom from the power of sin is a result of his finished work on the cross and that he had the authority to forgive sin, that he was God himself and that he was the Son of God which spoke to the clear existence of God the Father. John chapter 14, Jesus said this, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing His work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. He's saying to us, and he he would say this in multiple places, but he's saying to us, you cannot separate Jesus from God the Father. You cannot separate the Son from the Father. They are in perfect unity, far beyond what we can fully understand. That what Jesus did was a reflection of what his Father wanted him to do. And that they could believe in a Father God because they see him and his works point to his holiness and his character as God. Now we also know that Jesus' time on earth brought about the revelation of God. If you want to know the character of God, the heart of God, the ways of God, all you have to do is study Jesus' time on earth. There are people in our world today, some believe at least, that God is hidden or that somehow God cannot be known. But I would suggest to you today that through Jesus, when we look to Him, we can know if we want to know about God. Who, who and was is God and, and also represented God the Father. Let me show you scripturally. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see it there. Jesus was with God, and He was God. Several verses later, verse 14, the Word, Jesus, became flesh... And made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, notice it, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says that the Son, Jesus, is the image or the form, the bodily form of the invisible God. And Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity of God lives in bodily form. One more in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being 
sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He, Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty, notice the capital M, majesty in heaven. So we see here, Jesus accomplished His finished work, life, death, and resurrection. He goes back to heaven, ascends back to heaven, and He sits down, not on the throne of God the Father, but at the right hand of God the Father. And we see that Jesus in His time was the exact representation of the being of God and the radiance of His glory. So here's, here's the simplified version. If Jesus rose from the dead, He was God and was who He claimed to be, And his other claims were true as well. He rose from the dead, and part of his claims were that he was in God the Father, and God the Father was in him. So because he rose from the dead, and he was God, and claimed God the Father's existence, we know God is true even through the revelation of Christ. Let's continue on in our thought process for the evidence of God and talk about Scripture itself. Through the time of history, archaeology the study of human history through the excavation of sites and the study of artifacts, have served to actually anchor Scripture to history and geography. Have you ever read Scripture and you thought, where in the world is this place? Because the the different names, and of course you recognize that there's a lot of, of even political or governmental figures in Scripture. What archaeology has done has served to anchor those people and places back to real history, to real reality. So the people you read about were real people in real places during a real period of time. And archaeology has served to confirm that through the years. For example, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948 brought 800 manuscripts of each of the Old Testament books except for Esther. So here's a couple of things that those, that discovery did for us. Number one, it took us back 1,000 years further than any other documents had taken us to that point. It took us back another 1,000 years. So it also, by doing that, confirmed, because a lot of people will say, well, throughout the history of time, we know that there have been scribes involved who have continued to write down the Scriptures. Are we certain that they've done a good job? Can we be certain that through the years they've really written down everything, they haven't inserted their bias, they haven't inserted their opinion or added or taken away details? What this discovery helped us to know is that through the years, the scribes had been pure in their work, taking us back another thousand years and showing that the manuscripts of Scripture still aligned. Consider this as well about Scripture, that the books of Scripture were written over hundreds of years, somewhere between 1,300 and 1,500 years, penned by multiple writers, and it just so happens that they all carry some of the same themes throughout Scripture. God, creation, brokenness and sinfulness of humanity, salvation through an appointed Messiah, redemption, and even the ultimate restoration of God, putting things back the way He intended them to be from the beginning. This wasn't a group project. This wasn't a bunch of people who sat down in a room and said, you know what, let's write our own story and convince people that somehow this is true. These were people that through the centuries wrote some of the very same doctrines, themes, traditions, and it would have been impossible for them to sit in the room and do it together because they didn't even all live in one period of time. Remember, they had no Google 
I, I know this is becoming harder for people to believe and for those who may be younger in the room, but there used to not be an internet. I mean, there used to not even be smartphones. They were really dumb phones. Like black and green screen Nokia bar phones with the game Snake on it that we would play for hours. We still do the same dumb things, we just play it in color now, right? But I mean, we haven't always had this technology, so while we're so accustomed to it and used to it, you need to remember that they didn't have any of these things. This wasn't just about somebody getting together and sitting together and copying from everyone else the themes. The best explanation when you consider Scripture is very simple. All Scripture is God-breathed. That God inspired what was written by these penmen and it is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. That there had to be one author who then dictated the things that were captured and the reasons why that the writing that took between 1,300 and 1,500 years to come together is so in sync. There's a reason. There was one author. And let me just take a side tangent really quickly This is the reason why we hold to the authority of Scripture. This is why in a culture that is trying to distort, degrade, compromise, or totally disregard Scripture, we as Jesus followers are holding tightly to the Word of God. Because we recognize it's not just another book among books. It's not just one book found in the thousands in your local library or one Bible that can be referenced online amongst all this other literature. We recognize that the Scripture is God's Word to us. And there may be a lot of things that change around us, but we recognize, even God Himself says of it, that heaven and earth will pass away, but His Word will remain. Truth will stand. So we're encouraged today. We've got to hold on to truth. We've got to live by truth. We've got to memorize truth. We've got to take it to heart, take it to mind, and do our best by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to live out the truth of God. Are there questions sometimes? Sure. Are there things that that we're working out as we journey with Jesus? Without a doubt. In fact, Scripture tells us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. This whole idea that we're on a journey and God's revealing more and more and more and more, step by step, line upon line, precept upon precept. We're growing and learning. It doesn't mean that we know everything and can explain everything, but it means that we honor and reverence the Word of God because we know who it came from. So we hold on to Scripture. It is God breathed one author who led multiple writers to capture history and the heart of God. Scripture actually brings about the revelation of God Himself to us and helps us know how to have a relationship with Him. We're talking about the evidence of God and the existence of God today, and so we can't talk on that topic without also talking about creation itself. And throughout history, and it seems like this has maybe shifted a little more recently, but throughout history there have been a lot of people who have tried to argue that science and Christianity are at odds with one another. But I would suggest to you today that science has actually served a purpose to validate Christianity and belief in God, and research has confirmed the complexities of creation that can only align with an intelligent designer and with biblical historical accounts. Uh, To to give you a little philosophical approach to this that you can chew on this week, 
the universe began. I think we can all agree with that. Science has proven there was a beginning. The universe began, and anything that begins has to have a cause. With me so far? The universe began, anything that begins has to have a cause. Because the universe began, we know the universe had a cause. Scripture tells us this way, Romans 1.21, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. It's this idea that even in creation, there is proof and evidence for the existence and reality of God. Consider with me for a moment the complexity of creation. One expert said that there are more than 30 physiological or physical and cosmological parameters, more than 30 of those parameters that require very precise calibration in order to produce a universe that can sustain life. More than 30 things have to basically be in perfect alignment, perfect order, in order for the earth we live on today to sustain life. If the earth were slightly closer to or farther from the sun, water would either freeze or evaporate, rendering the earth unhabitable for complex life. If the earth didn't have the sun that was just the right size and the right age, it wouldn't support complex life. If earth didn't have the right type of moon, it would be uninhabitable. The moon stabilizes the earth's tilt, preventing extreme temperatures and creating a stable, life-friendly environment. Are you understanding these fixed points that must be in place? Paul Davies of Arizona, Arizona State University said, the cliche that life is balanced on a knife edge is a staggering understatement in this case. No knife in the universe could have an edge that fine. The universe is so uniquely calibrated to support life that it goes beyond the reach of coincidence. John O'Keefe from NASA, who was also a Harvard-educated astrophysicist, said, if the universe had not been made with the most exacting precision, we could have never come into existence. The exceptional conditions of our planet are not only complex in order that we can live here, but think about this. The exceptional conditions of our planet that make life possible also make it well-suited to be able to view and analyze the universe around us. We on earth are in a unique point to be able to see, know, and understand more about our universe than any other point. The Creator put us in place to be able to explore the cosmos around us. He intentionally put it where we could explore what's going on. We haven't even discussed the natural processes that exist without human interaction or intent, but are ongoing every day in our world. Things like photosynthesis and pollination and decomposition and evaporation. All the things that are happening when you walk outside today that you didn't cause. All the things that happen without us intentionally causing those things to take place. One of the best ways I know how to describe the reality of creation is to, to talk about my family, because I love my family, but it also gives me a reason to talk about this. I have three daughters, and uh, as most of you who probably have kids, we have a lot of books. My wife's laughing already. That tells you something. 
we have a lot of books. And, and I'm not just talking about my books and Amber's books. I'm talking about my kids have a lot of books. And I honestly wonder why we've bought all these books. Because if you're a parent in the room, you know that your kids pick out about three to five books that they get stuck on, and that's all they want to read. For us, it's probably a Disney princess or a, a Sleep in the Deep Little Shark or something like that. Oh, uh, Baby Shark for the youngest right now. Gosh, if I hear that song one more time. Anyway, that and Cocomelon's about to drive me bonkers. But they, they have these same books they want to read. And even among the Disney princesses, it's the same princesses. They want to read about Ariel. Or they want to read about Jasmine. That's about it. Really. I mean, I've sung a whole new world more times than I'd like to admit, okay? We've taken plenty of magic carpet rides, I can promise you. One of the things I love about my kids' books is they're so vibrant in color. You can't open it up and not admire the... Some of them are, are hand-drawn artistic pages. Some of them are, are, are obviously printed pages, but they all have really vibrant colors, great scenery. Some of them even have things in the book that you can feel, uh, like textures and things. Some of them even have... Any of you kids have the pop-outs? The pop-outs. There's one book that we read that talks about a squirrel storing his acorns, and we pop, every page is a different number. One acorn, the next page you pop out is two, and by the end he's got all the acorns in one place. It's great. Pop it out every page. It's so intricately designed. It's so amazing, all the colors that are on the pages. And whether it's big or small, a lot or little, there's usually something on the page called text that we read as well. And I'll admit to you, if they've not been cooperative and it's late and time to go to bed... My five, almost six-year-old doesn't know how to fully read. So I've cut out a few words here and there. It's enough to tell the story, but I mean, they need to go to sleep and so do I. Don't look at me in that tone of voice. You've done the same thing, you parents. I'm just talking about it out loud. What I know for certain is when I open that book... And I look at the colors and the texts and all of the intricate details that are there. I know that that book didn't just somehow happen. Somebody had to design it. Somebody had to do the colors. Somebody had to do the text. Somebody had to put the book together. Somebody had to print it. Somebody had to distribute it. The same is true with our world today. It's too complex for us to insinuate that somehow the intricate details of our world just came from nothing. Rather, the colors and the text of our world is telling us that there was an intelligent designer, that there was someone who intentionally placed with precision the details of our creation that caused it to continue to function without us even being able to make those things happen. So the next time you have a conversation with someone and you're debating the reality of creation, hand them a book. Ask them to flip through the pages Look at the colors, admire the text, read through it, and then ask them, how do you think this book came to happen? You'll find out real quick that most of us don't believe that something comes from nothing. Rather, creation speaks to a creator. Alan Rex Sandage, one-time protege to astronomer Edwin Hubble, said, It was my science that drove me to the conclusion that the world is much more complicated than can be explained by science. There are some who say if, if it's real, then it has to be able to be proven by science. And what God has done is so great that even science cannot tell the whole story. 
When we think of creation, we also have to think of humanity. When we think of the existence of God, we also have to point to humanity. Different from animals and distinct from nature, scriptural history specified that human beings are created in the image of God. So when you look at another person, they may not be living the life of walking with God, but in reality created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, I don't have time to break all of this down, but I encourage you to go back and study these verses. God said... Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and in the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. These verses alone... Not to mention many others, but these verses alone tell us that we are the unique creation of God created in His image. And when we begin to study not only the complexity of creation in the world, the physical world, but also the complexity of humanity, we begin to yet again be reminded of the existence of God. Consider this. The six feet of DNA that is coiled inside every one of our body's 100 trillion cells contains a four-letter chemical alphabet that spells out precisely assembly instructions for all the proteins from which our bodies are made. Let me break that down for you just one more time. 100 trillion cells. 100 trillion cells. And in every one of those 100 trillion cells, there's six feet of DNA information, the informational equivalent of roughly 8,000 books. Consider, that's just one piece of our bodies. We're not even talking about the functions that happen in our body every minute of every day that happen without our intentionality or cause or even thinking about them. I'm amazed at what it takes to happen in my body in order for me to have the signals that must go back and forth for me to pick up this cup of coffee and stay caffeinated today. All the things that just had to happen to communicate between my brain and my hand and my arm and the movements of my joints. All the ways that food is eaten and digested and processed and added or removed. The human body contains a variety of complex systems and organs that together allow us to breathe involuntarily. Our hearts beat autonomously, pumping blood throughout our circulatory system. Our brain and nervous system are more powerful and complex than any computer ever made by man, and yet one of the most impressive organs in the human body, and a sure sign for design, is the human eye. The anatomy and inner mechanisms of the eye's functions are extremely complicated and require a vast system of chemical reactions and interaction with the nervous system in order to produce the spectrum of color that we see and how we perceive the world around us. More specifically, it is even more astounding at how our brain works in tandem with our eyes in order for us as humans to comprehend the information that we gather. Think about that. It has to get from our eyes and into our brains and so that we're able to absorb what we're actually seeing and reading and how quickly does that happen in our body on a regular basis.
If that's not enough to consider the complexity of humanity, I want to also point to one of the most common arguments through the years of skeptics when it comes to the existence of God, and that is the topic of evil in the world. Now, there's much more that we could say to this, but I'm going to try to give you a thought to chew on and maybe do more research on in your time throughout this week. Many people have used the topic of evil in the world to explain why God cannot exist because they say either God cannot change it, doesn't have the power to, or He's not really good and He doesn't want to. Now, first of all, one of the questions for us to consider is could God have a reason or reasons for allowing evil in the world for a temporary time to bring about greater, more lasting, more permanent good? And we don't have time to process through all of that, but the reality is Scripture teaches us that God's thoughts and ways are much higher than ours, much, much more than what we can completely comprehend on our own. And for some people that bothers people, but I would tell you if you could fully comprehend and know everything about God, He would be on our level. I don't want to serve somebody on my level. I want to serve the one who's greater than I am. So there's a question about what does God see? in the overarching picture of the world that maybe we don't see or don't fully comprehend. Secondly, the reality that we recognize there's evil in the world, what does that actually say about the human heart? Hear me out. Something inside of all of us recognizes that there's something wrong with things that are happening in our world. Why is that? Why is it inherently true that inside of us we know we shouldn't murder somebody else, that it's wrong? Why is it that we know, unless there are a lot of other things that are taking place in a body or in a mind, there's a whole list of things I'm sure people would try to recite, but in reality, most of us, if asked, would know that killing someone is wrong. And we didn't have to be told that. And that speaks volume to the reality that we were created with some form of a moral compass that points to overarching objective truth. Truth that is not subjected to our opinion, but is common in all of us for all people for all time. And that objective truth points to a common wired understanding of humanity that speaks to a creator who instilled this into all of us. So the existence of evil in the world that we actually realize points to there's something wired in us that must come from another source to begin with. There are too many facts about humanity that point to the existence of God for us to deny Him. Those are some, and and I would say that one more that some people probably would try to dispute the most, but it would be the personal experiences of people in their lives that cannot be explained away by mere natural reasoning. I think of years ago, the pastor in a foreign country who was in his home, and he had faced quite a bit of persecution, and the government and the military leaders came to his home to set his home ablaze. And his home was not made of the materials that we would think of with our homes his home was made more of, of much more combustible material, much more able to burn. And they came to his home and they lit it on fire. And in that moment, with the home being on fire, the pastor, his kid, his wife, they, they huddled up in the middle of that home and they began to pray. They didn't, they didn't even try to escape. They didn't try to find the easy way out, so to speak. They prayed. And the military leaders who had come to light that place on fire, they knew for a fact they'd lit it on fire. 
Describe what would be like a vacuum cleaner descending on top of that house and literally pulling the fire and moving it off of that home. You cannot tell me that God doesn't intervene. It's the story of people who today as global workers are finding themselves in some of the spiritually darkest places on earth. And they're doing their job. They're doing their hard work. They're going and trying to sow truth and build relationships and have conversations with people. But yet in the midst of all of that, they're having people at times come to them because they will say, at night, Jesus appeared to me and they're ready to follow him. In their place, in their home, they believe that Jesus appeared to them and they're ready to follow Jesus after rejecting that truth all of their lives. You can't tell me that God is still not working and moving. It's the story of Jen Schieffer, who's a friend of mine and serves in the University of Central Arkansas. When Jen Schieffer became a student at UCA in 2001, she considered herself a firm agnostic. She was convinced that a person could not be both intelligent and a Christian. She believed in Jesus like people believe in an imaginary figure that kids celebrate throughout history. In her mind, it defied logic. Now, she was a non-religious person living in church-saturated Arkansas, so she came in contact with Christians all the time. But her high school classmates failed to provide any adequate answers to her questions. Often her intellectual queries would elicit blank stares and remarks such as, you just got to have faith. She didn't have any. The first week on campus at UCA as a college student, Jen's roommate received a flyer that had an invite about a band that was going to be performing. It was by an organization referred to as Chi Alpha, which serves on secular university campuses all over the world to help reach students for Jesus. To give you an idea of just how unfamiliar she was with anything, she thought it was Chi Alpha. So Chi Alpha sent an invitation to her roommate, and that flyer mentioned a band, and she liked music, so she thought they would go. She appreciated the music, but not so much the lyrics, Because as they kept singing the songs, Jesus kept popping up in the words of the choruses. She said, it's not that I hated Christians, I just thought they were stupid. She left that initial meeting, though, with a nagging sensation that there was some kind of void going on in her life. The first semester, several of her dorm mates who treated her with respect, even though she wasn't following Jesus, they would regularly go to those Chi Alpha gatherings each week, and so they invited her to go along. So really quickly, she realized, if I'm going to have a social circle with these people, I'm going to have to go with them. And she recounts that, I found friendship before I found faith. My classmates weren't intimidated by my lack of faith or my asking questions. In their group, as students, they began studying and discussing a book written by a one-time atheist that we talked about last week named Lee Strobel. The Case for Faith, a former journalist's personal investigation of the evidence for Jesus. She started grappling with tough spiritual questions. The director of the Chi Alpha got up one time and preached a message, What Keeps Us From God? And Shefer remembers the topic terrified me. I had based my life on what I could predict and control and understand. 
When the speaker asked them to write down the things that would keep them, the hindrances that would keep them from God, as the KFC chicken bucket passed down the row, she wrote and threw in the words, I'm afraid. Her second semester, Schieffer loyally went to Chi Alpha small group meetings as well as worship services, and she began to sense a mysterious sense that God's presence was taking place, even through others. She said, my skepticism began turning into a desperate longing for a God I didn't know. During the summer before her sophomore year, she agreed to the leader's request to be a part of a 10-week discipleship training, even though she'd not even made a commitment to serve Jesus and follow Christ yet. The leader had seen and realized how God had begun changing her heart and mind And Schieffer says that she began for the first time at that course to hear the voice of God whispering to her, Jennifer, I love you. This is the part that gets me every time. She says, I just sat on the floor and I wept. There was no altar call. There was no reciting a sinner's prayer. I just recognized somewhere along the way I had fallen in love with Jesus. Today, Jen is sharing this story and working with Chi Alpha on that very same campus and is celebrating 18 years of being a part of that staff to help people and inspire other people to follow Jesus. And when you think about skeptics and seekers, she said this. She said, my background gives me a point of compassion for the person who isn't certain yet. The legitimate resistance people have have of not being able to surrender their hearts. She said, I remember how lonely it felt to struggle to believe and not being able to do so. Through her experience, she's now being able to help other people. She knows God stepped in to her life. I'm going to ask you today, if you're in the room, would you stand with me? And if you're online, if you would pause where you are today to just have a time of response and I'm going to start by asking our prayer team members, if you're in the room today, would you come and make yourself available on either side even now? There may be a few people who want to pray or talk with you. Last week I said during our response time that there's probably two camps of people, and this week it kind of feels like that might be a little true again. Maybe the first camp of people is the people who should consider our conversation today. Consider the evidence of which we've only covered really a few things. Consider the evidence for the existence of God. The reality of Scripture and history that point to Jesus. The Scripture itself. The complexity of creation. The complexity of humanity. And even the presence of evil in our world. And even those who have said very plainly that they've personally experienced the power of God in their lives. I understand today You may have questions or doubts, or maybe it's even deeper than that. Maybe it's not just a little question here or a little doubt there. Maybe it's entrenched skepticism. Somewhere along the way, you've been led to believe that this isn't true, that this isn't real, that it's it's really just a philosophy or another school of thought or another man-made religion, and it's really just for the weak who need something to fall back on. Maybe today, rather than responding in skepticism, maybe you would be a person who would respond by seeking. 
I would challenge and ask you today to simply seek for truth, real truth. I would challenge you today to simply crack that door open to God. Not only to the possibility of His existence, but perhaps to the possibility that God formed and created you and has some incredible things in store for your life. What do you have to lose? I I challenge you today to consider our conversation, to, to crack that door open to the Lord and to allow Him to reveal Himself to you. I think of Jen, who I told this story. She's one of the greatest, probably one of the greatest disciple makers I've ever met in my life. Uh, we had a group of, of four ministers and she was in that group and we'd meet about once a month and have coffee and I'm so amazed at her love and her commitment and her faith in Christ that today she is where she is after coming from where she was. It's amazing. And I'm, I'm aware that all it took was her opening that door to even go to something that she couldn't even pronounce right. And yet God revealed himself and spoke to her and helped her see the truth. God, do the, God will do the same thing for you. I just challenge you to open your heart today. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're in the other camp, and the other camp is you're recognizing just how significant and wonderful creation is. You're recognizing how complex we are as created beings. You're recognizing all this evidence that points to God. Maybe you've already made a decision to follow Jesus, but you're just in awe today. When you go out and enjoy that beautiful weather today, and you look up in the blue sky, and you see the green grass and all the trees, when you, when you see things like oak trees that started just as a little acorn, all these different complexities of creation, you recognize God is so awesome and maybe today your response and my response is to worship the great God who is above all things and then maybe part B to our camp is God can we engage in conversations with people to help them see you too how can, I, how can I take what we're learning? How can I take what we're chewing on together, Lord? And how can I take that into my daily life and apply it to my conversations with other people? Can you open the doors and help me help someone who may be seeking truth or may even be skeptical of what is true? Well, Pastor Chris, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm scared of those conversations, and I'm certainly not a pastor, so I don't know if I could even answer all the questions. And I would say to you, the Bible talks about that Jesus gives pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets and evangelists to equip the saints, the Jesus followers, for work of ministry. You may not consider yourself a minister or pastor, but God has called all of us to be engaged in helping others know Him. So we're all in that boat. We're all on that page together. And so today, maybe our prayer needs to be, God, help us to, to do more, to be more intentional to have conversations with the people around me, my family, my friends, my neighbors, my co-workers, even people that you just simply crossed my path. Consider the conversation. Reflect on the evidence for God and open your heart to Him or spend time in worship to God and ask for courage and boldness to not be afraid to engage those who may be seeking truth or skeptical of this truth. I want to pray for you. And then I want to challenge you today to do something with what you've heard and to respond in some way. Father, thank you. As I come to to prayer to you today, I um, am grateful that I know you, Lord. 
and only because of what we celebrated earlier even in this service because of the finished work of Jesus can I be your child thank you thank you that you saw me long ago and you still loved me you gave yourself for me and today I give myself back to you Father, I, I thank you for the wonderful, wonderful blessings it is of knowing you and walking in relationship with you. And God, you know, I want everyone to know this. I want everyone to experience this in their lives. For a person who hasn't ever made a decision to follow Jesus, or for a person who's made a decision to follow Jesus and is just getting started out, or for a person who's been following you for a long time, Lord, your ever revelatory ways, God, of revealing yourself to a God in every one of them. I want everybody to know what it's like to know you, Lord. I pray in these moments that something that is said, something that has been done, today, God, would speak to the hearts of every person. I pray for those, God, who may be skeptics today, thinking it's just another man-made way of trying to deal with life. Or people, God, who are seeking truth and not sure where to turn. I pray today that something in this moment, Lord, especially you and your voice, would speak to them. And they would open the door to you. And they would find that you will ever reveal yourself through creation to them personally and in many other ways. And I pray, God, for those of us who've made the decision to follow you, that today we'd be reminded of just how big and wonderful and awesome you are and that we would be a people who give you worship not just in one moment of singing but Lord that we'd be people who live a lifestyle of worship to you recognizing just how wonderful you are and how gracious you've been to allow us relationship with you. And God, would you help us? Those of us who are Jesus followers, would you help us to to be able to engage conversations, Lord, with other people? Maybe for some it's not even this portion of the conversation. Maybe it's something else. Maybe Maybe it's just knowing that this is real. Maybe it's dealing with the things of life and needing something more than themselves. But God, would you help us engage these conversations? To not walk past person after person after person and say nothing but God to be people who are bold and courageous to reach out in love and to provide truth and to see people know you more would you help us and Father I pray that you would bless and keep this people and you would make your face to shine upon them and be gracious to them may your countenance your favor ever be turned in their direction and grant them your peace I pray the greatest peace in every heart would be knowing that we're right with you. I pray, God, that you would go with us and use us and in these moments of response, continue to speak to us and lead us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Prayer team members are prepared to talk with you and pray with you. Let's respond in some way. God bless you today.